for your glory, Father, shine into our hearts by this message, transforming our expectation. In Jesus' name we ask it, amen. The subject today is the transformation of our expectation, which is related to last Wednesday's message, increment 268. This is 270. The transformation of our expectation. Between the transformation of our imagination and the transformation of our expectation, we have the transformation of ourselves. We're dealing with the AD 70 trajectory in Hebrews. It's in earnest in Hebrews 8.13, but it also goes all the way through Hebrews 9.12. So let me reiterate our thesis that we have been speaking of several times, including our last Wednesday's message. The cosmology and the eschatology you hold has profound real-life consequences. Now, we've established that Hebrews 8.13 is pointing to the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. It's part of the A.D. 70 trajectory in Hebrews, which is also apparent in much of the New Testament. We've also established that the stone temple in Jerusalem was intended to be a representation of the entire universe. We did that by appealing in great detail to a few passages in Josephus. Consequently, the apocalyptic imagination can understand that the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem had such profound significance to the Jews at the time as to be equated with the destruction of the universe as far as they go. With that in our mind, in our imagination, we want to consider a profoundly significant passage of Scripture being the climactic passage of the Petrine epistles, that climactic passage being Second Peter, beginning with verse 8, going through 18. Now, I've exegeted this carefully from the Greek text, and within this, we literally have two visions of how people view eschatology. Some view it like the Stoics, that God is going to burn up the universe, the present universe, and destroy it. Others have what I consider to be the vision of the prophets of the Old Testament scriptures, the restoration of all things, and as Paul put it, the liberation of creation from its slavery to corruption. What are you looking for? What are you looking for? What you look for eschatologically is your expectation, and it's kind of a life-determining expectation. The transformation of our expectation is one of the things the Word of God does. If we are without hope, then our lives are profoundly affected by hopelessness. But if we have an expectation determined by the Holy Spirit and Scripture, then we have hope, and hope makes life worth living. So I want to take this on carefully. In 2 Peter, starting with verse 8 of 2 Peter 3, Peter starts by emphasizing this. Don't let this escape your notice, loved ones, that a single day to the Lord is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a single day. Already, he's saying, look, you can't look at things like you normally look at them. To see things the way God sees them is to have an entire transformation of perspective. A transformation of our perspective goes with the transformation of our imagination and of our expectation. 
So don't let this escape your notice, loved ones, that a single day to the Lord is as a thousand years and a thousand years as a single day. The reason for this, of course, is because the Lord inhabits eternity, as Isaiah 57, 15 says. Verse 9, the Lord does not delay the fulfillment of his promise, as some people understand delay. Because some people understand delay in the wrong way, they think Jesus, and I've read people that have actually said this, Jesus was wrong when he predicted the imminence of his coming. Or Paul was wrong and had to change his mind. No, Jesus and Paul were entirely correct, and you, writers like that, are incorrect in your perception of what delay means. The Lord doesn't delay the fulfillment of his promise, as some understand delay, but he's patient toward you, not willing that anyone perishes, but instead that everyone makes room for repentance. Verse 10, now the day of the Lord will come as a thief in which the heavens with a loud noise and the elements, that word we used, we found that in Josephus, that's stoichia, stoichia, the elements will melt he says, the day of the Lord will come as a thief in which the heavens with a loud noise and the elements will melt. This We find the word elements in Galatians 4.9 in association with the Jewish worship. We also find it in Colossians 2.8, 2.20, Hebrews 5.12. We find it in Josephus' Jewish Wars, book 3, line 186. So again, let's look at 3.10. Now the Day of the Lord will come as a thief in which the heavens with a loud noise and the elements burning will break up and the earth and all its works will be discovered. Now this is a prophecy of the destruction of the temple which was depicted by the Jews as the universe, the elements of the universe. And this actually happened in A.D. 30. At the destruction of the temple, the elements of the temple were burned up, broken up, and the earth and all its works, all the things that were in the temple, were discovered as to their true nature. Now notice this, because Peter, this second Peter is being written by an amunensis, amunensis who is not Peter himself. It's written, in my view, after the destruction of Jerusalem. In verse 11, it says, all these things being dissolved. Young's literal translation has it right here. All these things being dissolved, meaning he's looking back at the destruction of Jerusalem. Or if you want to say this is Peter, and you have every right to say it's Peter, Peter was seeing this seeing the destruction of Jerusalem before it happened as if he's after it happened, if you want to put it that way. All these things being dissolved. The word is luo here. Familiar word if you look at last time's message. It's the present passive participle of the verb luo, L-U-O, long O. And it's descriptive of an event that had occurred, very importantly, 
descriptive of an event that had occurred. So you say, okay, if this event had occurred, then the universe was already destroyed. No, the temple was destroyed. That represents the universe, as Josephus understood it and made it very clear, and as the scriptures make it clear also. And so he said this, and this is the question I have to ask myself and ask all who are listening. All these things being dissolved, he says, what kind, and this literally means from what country, it's found in Hebrews 11.16, what kind of people should you be, he says. In other words, if Jerusalem is destroyed and literal Israel has been destroyed and you survived that, what kind of people ought you to be? What country do you think you should be from? And of course, that's the heavenly city, the heavenly country, the country that Abraham looked for, the country that all the pilgrims of the Old Testament looked for. So let's look at it again. All these things being dissolved, meaning an event that had already occurred, what kind of people should you be? That's how we'd say it. But it means literally, from what country should you be? Or what country should you long for? Of course, it's a heavenly one with a heavenly city. What kind of people should you be? And then he says, conducting yourselves in holiness and piety. That's sanctification, which is a major theme coming up soon in Hebrews. Verse 12 is actually a question. It reads like this. Should you be, should you be, this kind of people, waiting for and urging on the arrival of the day of God, by which the heavens being on fire will break down and the elements melt away with intense heat? Should you be the kind of people, in other words, that are waiting for the destruction of the universe? But you know what it says in verse 13? To the contrary. No, you shouldn't be. You shouldn't be waiting for the literal destruction of the universe. You should see the destruction of the universe depicted in the temple. That's past. But what you should be looking for is not the destruction of the universe. To the contrary. D-E, D-E, D is a marker of contrast. On the contrary, he says, we, speaking as a representative of the new covenant community, and I'm willing to say it's Peter, we, the new covenant community, wait for a new heavens and a new earth. What are you looking for? What are you waiting for? Are you waiting for the destruction of the universe? Or do you understand that the universe in its typical form was destroyed in the destruction of the temple? So now you're looking for a new heavens and a new earth, the transformation of the universe. You see what I mean when I say that the eschatology you hold is, has real life consequences? The expectation you hold has real life consequences. All these things being dissolved, what kind of people should you be conducting yourselves in holiness and piety? Should you be waiting for and urging on the arrival of the day of God by which the heavens being on fire will break down and the elements melt away in intense heat? To the contrary, that means no, that's not the people you should be, no. We, the new covenant community, wait for a new heavens and a new earth 
That's a new heavens and a new earth that's signaled by the new covenant according to his promise. Promise is what 2 Peter begins with in 2 Peter 1.4, exceeding great and precious promises whereby we become partakers of the divine nature. It also refers to the better promises in Hebrews 8.6 in connection with the new covenant. According to his promise in which righteousness will be permanently at home. Righteousness, according to Psalm 22.31, is what God has done. What God has done, his saving act, the God of salvation, what the God of salvation has done will be always at home. In other words, the new heavens and the new earth will involve salvation and not perishing. No perishing, all salvation, what God has done, what God does in his people. That's what we're looking for. That's what you answer when someone says, what are you looking? I'm looking for what the prophets said. All of them, without exception, from time immemorial, from the first prophet to the last prophet of the Old Testament, God's prophets. God spoke univocally in every one of them about an apocatastasis pantone, the restoration of everything, not the destruction of everything, the restoration of everything. The prophets spoke of the destruction of a temple that represented the universe. They did not speak of the destruction of the material universe. That's not what we look for. And so the God of salvation and righteousness for which we hunger and thirst will be permanently at home in the new heavens and the new earth. New paragraph, really, in verse 14. Therefore, dearly loved ones, expecting these things. What things? A new heavens and a new earth where righteousness is all at home and forever at home. Where the saving act of God is everything and perishing none perish. Therefore, dearly loved ones, expecting these things, be diligent to be found unstained and blameless and at peace. This is like Paul saying, look, we're going to all face the judgment seat of Christ, the day of evaluation. The fire is going to try our works. So let us live our lives now unstained, blameless, and at peace, reconciled with God, reconciled with the mind of Christ, the thinking of Christ, the intentionality of the spirit. That's what kind of people we ought to be. So if you back up slightly, you see in verse 11, all these things being dissolved. And then in verse 14, expecting these things. What's been dissolved is the representation of the universe in the old covenant stone temple. What is to be expected is the liberation of creation as Hebrews Make, make that Romans, as Romans eight nineteen to 23 says. So therefore, dearly loved ones, be diligent to be found. That is, when the high priest makes his second appearance, unstained and blameless and at peace, and consider the patience of the Lord as salvation. That means in terms of waiting for cosmic, a coming cosmic salvation, not destruction. You're waiting for a coming cosmic salvation and not destruction. This is the transformation of the expectation of the new covenant community that accompanies a new Jesus revolution, a Jesus revolution with Jesus as universally saving in the center of that revolution. 
Consider the patience of the Lord as salvation. Just as our beloved brother Paul wrote to you according to the insight given to him. What is the insight given to Paul? USSJC, the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ and the universal impact, saving and reconciling, redeeming impact of the cross of Christ. That's the insight given to Paul as in all his epistles. Peter sums up all of Paul's epistles as speaking in them of these things, the new heavens, the new earth, the liberation of creation, of all of creation and all of humanity. Just as our beloved brother Paul wrote to you according to the insight given to him, as in all his epistles, and then Peter makes a warning here, in which there are some things that are admittedly hard to understand. He speaks about these things, he says, these things, things that we expect in verse 14, new heavens and a new earth, that's what we expect. Which certain ignorant and unstable people distort. That includes men without imagination, without a prophetic imagination, without an apocalyptic imagination, without a psychic conversion, unlearned, unstable, and they distort the rest of the scriptures. They use a crass kind of literalism, for example. They misunderstand what Paul says. They think Paul is saying that people are individually justified by individual personal faith, when what Paul is really saying is that all of humanity is justified by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ in Romans 5, 15 through 19, and in Romans 8, 30. And so, to their own ruin... And this, of course, refers to the ruination of ministries, the ruin of the ministries of men who distort the scriptures. So, again, let's start with verse 16, the warning, as in all his epistles, in which there are some things that are admittedly hard to understand, he speaks about these things, which certain ignorant and unstable people distort, as they do the rest of the scriptures, to their own ruin. That means the ruin of their ministries and the burning up of their works as wood, hay, and stubble. 17, therefore, loved ones, therefore, loved ones, having foreknowledge of these things, that means having a proper eschatology, a proper good hope by grace, as Paul called it in 2 Thessalonians 2.16, a good hope by grace. Therefore, he says, notice it again, loved ones, having foreknowledge of these things. What is that? An expectation of the new heavens and the new earth, of a universal restoration, a universal transformation, a transfiguration and a liberation of creation, not a destruction of it. We're not Stoics, we're Christians. Therefore, loved ones, having foreknowledge of these things, meaning a proper eschatology, I would put in brackets, or a good hope by grace, I put in brackets. Stay on guard, he says, so as not to be led astray. And that means associated with, as Galatians 2.13 puts it, and also with the warning against drifting in Hebrews 2.1-3. Don't be led astray by the delusion of the unprincipled and drift from your steady course. Becoming a drifter instead of a disciple. That's the delusion of unprincipled men. And drift from your own steady course. 
That also means, according to Freiburg's lexicon, lose your firm footing. Don't lose your firm footing. Don't, don't lose your perseverance, your firm position. It means don't stray from a state of inner stability. And Lunita defines it as a state of firm inner strength, a firm position, being firm in hope, as we've taught before in the affirmations of Tetelestai Phalanx. Firmness, steadfastness, the word is stereoma, and it means that as a church we present a main line of resistance against the demonic. We present a forward line of troops of advancing believers. And that's all found in this little thing called don't lose your footing. Verse 17, therefore loved ones having foreknowledge of these things. That means a transformed expectation of a new heavens and a new earth. Stay on guard so as not to be led astray by the delusion of the unprincipled and drift from your steady course. It's also a nautical term to be drifting off course, which is also the idea in Galatians 5.4 and Hebrews 2.3 and 4. And for another interpretation of the word sterigmas in 2 Peter 3.17, we find the state of security and safety, a place of safety, a position of safety. Don't wander from your position of safety, led astray by the errors of lawless people and fall from your safe position, it means, safe from error, safe from the error of the wicked. So again, that's all commentary. Let me just read it straight from verse 14 through 17. Therefore, dearly loved ones, expecting these things, be diligent to be found unstained and unblameless and at peace, and consider the patience of the Lord as salvation. Just as our beloved brother Paul wrote to you according to the insight given to him, as in all his epistles in which there are some things that are admittedly hard to understand, he speaks about these things, which certain ignorant and unstable people distort, as they do the rest of the scriptures, to their own ruin. Therefore, loved ones, having foreknowledge of these things, a proper eschatology, stay on guard so as not to be led astray by the delusion of the unprincipled and drift from your steady course. The delusion of the unprincipled is something you may find in books called Left Behind and a lot of other things that are popular literature of our time. Popular Christian literature? No, it ain't Christian, and it ain't popular to God. Verse 18, to the contrary, once again he uses de, de, which we translate sometimes too simply as but, B-U-T, to the contrary is a marker of contrast. In contrast to being led astray by the delusion of unprincipled people. To the contrary, grow. That means continue to augment your eschatological hope by grace. Grow in grace. And in the knowledge, in the knowledge, they shall all know me, all shall know me. Grow in the knowledge, the enlightenment, the understanding, the insight, all of that means that, of our Lord and Savior. To him, the glory, now, that's the permanent now, the nunc stands, the eternal now, even the eternal day, amen. So having gone, uh, undergone the permanent change of situation, 
we await the permanent alteration of the universal condition. In the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, God reconciled the world to himself, not imputing the world's trespasses or transgressions to them. That's the change of situation that only faith perceives. By sight, we do not perceive that reconciliation. By sight, we perceive anything but reconciliation to God. But having gone, undergone this permanent change of situation that we find in 2 Corinthians 5.19, we await the permanent alteration of the universal condition. We aren't looking for the destruction of the material universe. We're looking back at the destruction of the symbolic universe in the demolition of the temple and the vanishing of the old covenant brought up in Hebrews 8.13 and all that was associated with it, including the priesthood and the garments of the priests and the animal sacrifices and the meal sacrifices and the sacrifices having to do with Yom Kippur, where the high priest offered a sacrifice for his own sins first and then for the sins of the people. All that's gone. One high priest, Jesus Christ, once and for all, offered himself without spot, without wrinkle, without any blemish as the Lamb of God. He didn't offer for his own sins. He had no sin. So he became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. We're looking forward, therefore, to a new heavens and a new earth where God's saving act is at home and there's no more perishing. We're looking not for the destruction of the universe, but for its liberation from slavery to corruption, Romans 8, 19 to 23. And that expectation has real life consequences, psychological consequences, spiritual consequences, ethical consequences. And when I speak of ethical, I'm speaking of a Christological ethic, an ethics that is Christological, which is a life and a lifestyle that's controlled by the love of Christ. We are controlled by the love of Christ. Affirmation 7 of Tetelestai Phalanx in this year, 2023. To Israel, the destruction of the temple was indeed the shaking of the earth and the heavens, as prophesied in Hebrews 12, 26 and 27. But the shaking began with the loud voice of Jesus from the cross, which resulted in the tearing of the corporeal, this-worldly curtain to the earthly man-made holy of holies in the humanly refurbished temple in Jerusalem in A.D. 30. And an earthquake and a resurrection of many from the dead accompanied that. Matthew 27, 50 to 51 to 52, in fact. Mark 15, 38. Luke 23, 45, compared with Hebrews 10, 20. The tearing of the curtain represented the tearing of the flesh of the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, admitting through that highway to the holy of holies in the heavens. Now, speaking of the removal of the material tent and temple, there is A.D. 70, which is our subject. Both the, arc, the apocalypse of Jesus Christ given to John for the churches in Asia Minor, which is the province of Phrygia, the Roman province of Phrygia, and the letter to the Hebrews, though evidently written to certain regional representatives of the New Covenant community who were living in the moments before the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70, though those, there are those who think otherwise, 
their inspiration to faith, hope, and love, and incentive to true worship are just as powerful on the level of our time. Let me read that again because we just finished, well, not just finished, but we have accomplished 515 hours in the book of Revelation years ago, and now we're in Hebrews and may spend as many years in Hebrews, who knows. But both the apocalypse of Jesus Christ given to John for the churches of Asia Minor, the Roman province of Phrygia, and the letter to the Hebrews, evidently written to certain regional representations of the New Covenant community who were living in the moments before the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. Their inspiration, the inspiration of the book of Revelation and Hebrews and all the New Testament books, their inspiration of faith, hope, and love, and their incentive to true worship are just as powerful on the level of our time as they were in that time. And we may be facing a time of catastrophic judgment as they were in their time. Regarding Hebrews, here is the dialectic. This begins a dialectic. When was Hebrews written? Let me ask two questions. When was Hebrews written, before or after the AD 70 destruction? Second question, does it matter to us on the level of our time? Does it matter to us on the level of our time? R.M. Duran wrote this on the second to the last page of his last book just previous to his death in 2021. He wrote this, the letter, speaking of Hebrews, and it's so strange and so odd and so astonishing that in the last pages of his writing he would mention, make mention of the necessity of studying Hebrews. He said the letter Hebrews makes best sense, I believe, and of course he's speaking here as a Milwaukee Brewers fan, so we have to forgive him. And we have to understand that he probably doesn't quite understand everything here. But he says the letter, Hebrews, makes best sense, I believe, if it is seen as having been written after the destruction of the temple, when the themes of a new priesthood located in Jesus and made continuous with Jesus' own intention as he spoke and acted against the temple and went to his death as a result. Why does he think that means it had to be written after the destruction of the temple? Well, if our Milwaukee Brewer fan brother in Christ was still alive now, I'd ask him that. I don't see a convincing reason why the letter makes more sense if written after rather than before the destruction of the temple. And he also references a man who wrote a book called The Epistle to the Hebrews in Christian Theology by a guy named Hooker in 19... On page 197 of his book. However, let's leave room for some of these guys who have earned their opinions. Duran is right, I believe, to see Hebrews in the historical and prophetic light of AD 70. If he, if he believed it happened after AD 70, he still believes it was written in the light of what happened in AD 70 and more so in the light of what happened in AD 30, of course. So we can have an agreement that Hebrews was written in the historical and prophetic light of A.D. 70. In fact, the more I study, the more I see that it's almost impossible to properly interpret Hebrews apart from that historical judgment. So does it matter? It doesn't matter to fellowship. I would still fellowship with someone who obviously believed this was written after the destruction of Jerusalem. I would have fellowship with them if they believed that it was destroyed before 
the writing or after the writing? Does it matter? Not in terms of fellowship. Does it matter? Not really in terms of our spiritual life. It does matter in terms of certain interpretive devices of Hebrews, but in one sense, I don't think it matters that much. Not the fellowship and not to the Christian living on the level of our time. In a book called All Shall Be Well, which I highly recommend, on the chapter about Jacques Ellul, we read about him way back in the mid-70s when I was in Bible school in Massachusetts. Jacques Ellul, that's E-L-L-U-L. Writing an article on Jacques Ellul, Andrew, Andrew Goddard wrote this about Ellul. He's a life worth living and studying. Elul is clear, he says, that the language of judgment is to be understood as referring to historic and temporal consequences. Further support for this understanding and way of reading biblical texts could also now be found and applied to the New Testament by means of proposals developed particularly by George Caird, I studied him extensively, and applied in relation to the New Testament eschatology by N.T. Wright. I've studied thousands of pages of N.T. Wright as well, that read apocalyptic end-of-the-world language in terms of the significance of historical events so that, for example, emphasis here, much of Jesus' teaching traditionally understood to refer to hell may refer to the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. Yeah, that's true. That's me. So this is where cosmology meets apocalyptic. Because apocalyptic, and we all know that it does refer, of course, to the historical destruction of Jerusalem and not to some post-mortem place of endless punishment for people who didn't behave or believe rightly. The word Gehenna, in fact, used by Jesus, who never said the word hell, but said Gehenna, is the valley of Hinnom around Jerusalem, where corpses were thrown and incinerated and burned in A.D. 70. And so we're talking about the hell that Jesus was warning them about was the destruction of Jerusalem if they didn't believe that he was the Christ. So... Again, don't be carried away with the error of the unprincipled and those who take literally what should be taken metaphorically and those men who do not have a psychic conversion or a transformation of the imagination but write foolish books and preach foolish sermons about hell that they have no idea about in reality. None. They have no idea about it, and they have distorted the Christian message to the point where millions of people have perished in time because of that expectation, and that is terrible, and I can't even emphasize how ugly it is. This is where cosmology meets apocalyptic. Cosmology, the study of the universe, apocalypse, a certain genre of language. Because apocalyptic as a genre deployed cosmological language to convey its disclosures. This is especially true where the events immediately leading up to and culminating in A.D. 70. The language of cosmology or the study of the universe, the cosmos, is used in apocalypses like the book of Revelation and Matthew 24, especially Matthew 24, 29, compared with Mark 13, 24 to 25, Isaiah 13, 1, 13, 10, 13, 17, a judgment on Babylon, 
And note that John calls Jerusalem of the second temple Mystery Babylon in Revelation 17.5. As well as in Isaiah 34.4, Joel 2.10, 2.31, and 3.15. And it's also in the parallels of Mark 24 and Mark 13 and Luke 21. The lack of a psychic conversion has led to the most egregious misinterpretations of scripture. Prominent among these misinterpretations is the tragic failure to understand, as we just read from Goddard regarding Elul, much of Jesus' teaching, traditionally understood to refer to hell, may refer to the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. I will amend that slightly and say this. Instead of much of Jesus' teaching traditionally referred to, to refer to hell, I would say all of Jesus' teaching traditionally used to refer to hell not may refer to the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. I would say does refer to the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. Only a psychic conversion grants the cognitive potency to see that the language of judgment is very often to be understood as referring to historical and temporal consequences. A.D. 70 is very illustrative of this theme, but so is A.D. 30, for the last judgment is stored up in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to Paul's gospel, the last judgment isn't a final accounting of whether someone's good works have outweighed their bad works or whether one has believed in Jesus or not. According to Paul's gospel, on the day when God judges the secrets of people, he does so through Christ Jesus. Paul says, according to my gospel, Romans 2.16. The wisdom of God is many-sided, and his word has many layers and levels of application and meaning. This goes for the meaning of the heavens and the earth as symbolic of the temple in Jerusalem and its actual cosmological meaning. For there is to be a universal change of the condition of the cosmos, the universe, even as there has been a universal change of the situation of the cosmos before God, because God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. God was in the Lamb of God who took away the sin of the cosmos. The Lord makes perishable heavens, he makes the perishable heavens and earth imperishable, even as he makes the mortal perishable, human body immortal and imperishable in the past, the permanent alteration of the somatic status of humanity. As the scripture says, for this perishable must be clothed with imperishability, and this mortal clothed with immortality. That goes for our body, that goes for the universe itself in 1 Corinthians 15, 53. The perishable perishes when it becomes imperishable. Let me say that again. The perishable perishes when it becomes imperishable because in the imperishable, the perishable has perished. When God is all in all in 1 Corinthians 15, 28. In this way, the scripture is shown to be true, which says, Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. Praise him, highest heavens, and you waters above the heavens. 
Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded and they were created. He has set them in position forever and ever. He gave an order that will never pass away. Psalm 148, 3 through 6. So as we wind to a close, the heavens and the earth pass away only in the sense that they undergo an alteration. When Jesus said the heavens and the earth will pass away, but my word does not pass away, he was referring to the passing away of the earth only in the sense that they undergo an alteration of their condition and constitution from perishable to imperishable. They are set in their positions forever because they are rendered imperishable when he gives the order that all things be made new. God's command cannot and will not pass away, and it was by his command that all things were created and redeemed. This command, this order, was issued in the nunc stands, which is the permanent now from the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is what I call instauration, creation through crucifixion. God spoke in the nunc stands, that's N-U-N-C, another word S-T-A-N-S, Ap aeonos, that is from eternity. And his eternal word came through the mouth of his holy prophets about the times of the restoration of all things. Chronon, apocatostasios panton, the times of the restoration of all things in Acts 3.21. That is, of the manifestation of God's eternal creative word in time. Instead of saying that God spoke from time immemorial, though this too is true, we can say that God spoke from eternity in Acts 3.21 and that his eternal word came univocally through the mouth of the holy prophets, announcing the restoration of all things, which in essence is the same as the making of all things new to share the life and the livingness of the triune God. The eternal word this eternal word in Jesus Christ is Jesus Christ and him crucified. For in the crucified Christ is stored up not only the end of sin and death, but resurrection and the new creation of all things. I can't even articulate this, and that's my prayer. Give me the grace to articulate this. But the Lord can speak it to your heart and spirit. In fact, all mankind needs a new spirit to hear it. And we all need a deeper capacity of spirit to grasp the eternality of God and his word, the reality of Jesus Christ. May the eternal spirit, the spirit of grace, empower us to grasp the one who has us in his eternal grasp. As Paul said, I want to lay hold on him who laid hold of me. Isaiah 57, 15, my translation reads like this. This is what the Lord says, the Most High, who inhabits eternity in lofty places. Holy among the holy ones is his name. The Lord, the Most High, who rests in the saints, giving patience to the faint-hearted and life to those whose hearts are shattered. Does it matter that Hebrews was written before or, AD, or after A.D. 70? Not really, at least not to us. What is important to us is that having undergone the permanent change of situation, we await the permanent alteration of the universal condition 
and even of our bodily condition. In the meantime, I got good news for you. 1 Corinthians 3.21b, all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Peter, and their writings too, whether life or death, whether things present or things about to be, all is yours, and you belong to Christ and Christ to God. And you are not your own. You were bought with a price. Now glorify God in your body. 1 Corinthians 6, 19, b-20. For we must all be revealed before the tribunal of Christ in order that each one may be repaid for what he has done in the body, that is, in this time in between, whether good or bad. 2 Corinthians 5, 10. Father, grant to us the reverential fear of you in the sense that we have awe of you, that it is God in us both willing and doing of his own good pleasure. Be in us willing, be in us doing your own good pleasure. For when that day comes, when your consuming fire consumes all that would destroy us and all that is destructive, we pray that what will be revealed in us is the kingdom that cannot be removed. And what will be revealed about us is that we will have served in our life acceptably, served you acceptably as a royal priesthood and that we have done it entirely and purely by your grace. We ask this in Jesus' name, who is full of grace and truth. Amen.